Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. I believe this is the only time I can think of that I have preached for five weeks straight from the same page of my Bible. Like you can see I've marked it up here. Like it's it's gonna get it's gonna fall out soon. <laughs> so we are in Romans chapter one, and we're just gonna read verses sixteen and seventeen, and when you get there, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter one, verses sixteen and seventeen. Hear the word of the Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. This ends the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we so desperately need the ministry of your Holy Spirit within our hearts today. We confess that apart from your Holy Spirit, these words will remain words on a page or words spoken by a man. But by the power of your Spirit, by the agency of your Spirit, Lord, will you cup deeply into our hearts. And we pray that you would. Cause us to find your word sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing deeply even to the division of soul and spirit, and able to judge the thoughts and motivations of our hearts. Father, would you do that for your glory and for our eternal good. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been embarrassed? I'm sure all of us at some point have been embarrassed. All of us at some point have, you know, been talking to a a woman at some point and asked her that fatal question, so, when are you due? (laughs) And then we get that haunting response, I'm not pregnant. And you realize your entire life has just flashed before your eyes. You are embarrassed. You are covered in shame. You are baptized with shame. You know, it, and, it's, and it's, it's that same general feeling as what Paul is describing here when he says, I am not ashamed, but it's not quite the same. If you look at the Greek word for ashamed, it is um, a paskomone. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that Greek word correctly. I, I wrote it down in everything so that I would, wouldn't mispronounce it, and I still think I butchered it. A paskonomai. That, that's what it is. A paskonomai. And what it means is it means disfigurement. It means dishonor. And so what Paul says in Romans 1.16, he says, I am not disfigured by the gospel. I am not dishonored by the gospel. Now, if we try to, to read this woodenly at face value... We simply read it as Paul saying that he's not embarrassed to be a Christian. And while Paul certainly is not embarrassed by his faith, his statement of not being ashamed goes far deeper than that. Matter of fact, his shame, his statement about not being ashamed goes into the Old Testament. If we go back and read Psalm 25, uh, the first three verses, David speaks about this a little bit. He says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. 
Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Now you'll remember back during Advent, I kind of covered Psalm 25 a little bit. And so I'm not going to go into great lengths of detail, but David talks about this idea. David in Psalm 25 says, Oh Lord, I've put my trust in you. Don't let me be ashamed. Don't let all the, I've put all my eggs in one basket. Don't let it come to nothing. And then even a little bit of our responsive reading this morning from Psalm 40. By the way, I was, I, I felt a little bit of embarrassment and shame this morning when I looked at the bulletin and realized that instead of Psalm 40, 9 through 17, I wrote Psalm 42 up there, 9 through 17. I mean, that doesn't probably mean much to y'all, but I like everything to be correct on the bulletin. And so when I realized I misprinted something, I just got all angsty inside. And so, like even in Psalm 40, verses 9 through 17, from where we read this morning, David says, I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. He said, indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord, you yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. So what's he saying? He's saying, I'm not ashamed of your righteousness. But there is shame to be had by those who are against God's righteousness. That's why, that's why David goes on to say, let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life and let them be driven backwards and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Now what would cause David shame is for him to trust God and then be defeated by his enemies. He doesn't want his hope in God to come to nothing. However, he wants those who deal treacherously without a cause to experience shame. And it's not simply because they're his enemies. It's not simply because he doesn't like them. It's not simply because they're the bad guys in this category of people he doesn't like. It's because their hope is not in God. Their hope is instead in their own ability to deal out despair and shame on whoever is in their path. David wants them instead to experience a taste of their own medicine. David wants them to experience their own hurtful behavior. Now, now what's the modern day application of this? Why does this matter today? Because the world around us utilizes shame as a weapon against those who trust in God. The world around us utilizes shame as a weapon against those who trust in God. And you see this even in the New Testament, especially in the New Testament, when you consider the persecution of the church, when you consider the persecution of those who, who follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul describes his own persecution in, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 This is from the New Living Translation. He said, I've worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I have been beaten with rods. He says, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced, down, I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. And so Paul lists all these things in 2 Corinthians 11, and you think, Paul, why don't you just give up while you're ahead? I mean, after all, Paul's a tent maker. He's got a solid job outside of his ministry. Tent makers, made, tent makers weren't filthy rich by any stretch of the imagination, but they, made we, they did well. Paul, why don't you just make some tents and shut up and live life the easy way? 
It's because He knows what is right. And what is right is not always what is easy. Wouldn't his life be easier if he just stopped preaching? Of course it would. Paul knew that whatever temporal shame the world threw at him now would be nothing compared to the glory that he would experience later. That's why he says earlier in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, for our light affliction. He calls the, listen to the affliction he just described. That doesn't sound light. Beaten. Shipwrecked. Danger from people who claim to be believers but are not. Danger from the Jews and the Gentiles. But he said he calls it light. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. He said, all this stuff, all this negativity, all of these things that I experience, it's all light compared to that eternal weight of glory. And that's, that's profound when you think about it. And we don't, we don't treat it that way. We don't treat affliction as light. We treat it as heavy. We can't handle it when something little comes our way. We just break down. And it's because we don't understand how heavy the glory is. Man, that's good stuff. You, we don't understand how heavy the glory is that God has for us. And so the shame that Paul experienced is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory. And so that's, that's the shame Paul experienced. And then Jesus promised shame to those of us who believe. If we look at John chapter 15, the Gospel of John, verses 19 and 20, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But that's not what happens, is it? They don't keep, they don't keep the word of the disciples. Instead, they go their own way. But Jesus knows that. Jesus understands that. Jesus is telling them, Jesus isn't going to sugarcoat it for them. He says, if the world hated me, they will hate you also. You're not going to have an easy time about this. Jesus promises that shame will come. But His victory over death, hell, and the grave makes this shame irrelevant. That's why He can say in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for My sake. And then right after that, Jesus says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Well, how can we rejoice and be exceedingly glad when we're hated and being made to feel shame for what we know to be true? It's because Jesus goes on to explain why. He says, Great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what's Jesus' explanation for this? Why does Jesus say we can rejoice and be exceedingly glad? It's because our reward is great and we're not alone. We're in good company. We're in good company with the prophets who were persecuted. We're in good company with the priests who were persecuted. We're in good company with those who are being undermined and those who are being shamed for what they know to be true. I think of Jeremiah chapter 18. In Jeremiah chapter 18, it opens up with this beautiful message of grace. It opens up with this beautiful imagery of the the potter forming the vessel. God tells Jeremiah, he says, this, this is Israel, and I'm forming, and I'm shaping them. And, it, and you read that, 
and you see the work of grace in that. It's this beautiful message that Jeremiah gives to the people. But how do the people respond to that beautiful message of grace? They imprison him. (laughs) It's like, like, well, Lord, I'm preaching this wonderful message. It should get a lot of amens. Well, why is it not getting the intended response? It's because people don't want to be formed and shaped by God. They would, they would rather allow their character to be formed by their circumstances. They would rather allow themselves to be formed by what they can see. They would rather follow what the, what's tangible than what's invisible. And so what happens in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 18, after all of this, after this beautiful message of grace? Well, they persecute him. They come against him. Jeremiah 18, 18, it says, Then they said, Come, let us devise plans against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor word from the prophet. And let us attack him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. And so, what, and so when Jeremiah gives this word, this word about God forming and shaping them on the potter's wheel, they respond to it negatively. Why? Because they... They don't want to believe, they don't want to feel like their power is being taken from them. They don't want to feel like their power structure is being messed with. And if God's the one in charge, if God's the one who has the power, then it's not them. And that intimidates them. And so they make him feel shame for for standing for the truth. But the good news is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, leaves no room for shame. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God for salvation. Now, the Greek word for power is dunamis. See, I didn't, miss that. I didn't mess that one up. That's easy. The Greek word for power is dunamis, and it's where we get our modern word for dynamite. It's an explosive power. The gospel is an explosive power that reveals salvation for those who believe. And when, you, when you're embarrassed and you, when you experience shame, you want to run and hide. That's why, that's why the world around us wants to make, make us feel ashamed. They want us to hide under a bushel. When you're embarrassed and when you experience shame, you want to run and hide. And that's what the world wants when they deal out shame. Our secular society tries to be a constant purveyor of shame against people who believe in the truth of the gospel. However, you can't hide something that's explosive. It's hard to be subtle when something blows up. That's why Christianity garners so much negative attention from every oppressive nation where it has been present. From Rome to modern day America, Christianity confounds, confuses, and downright intimidates the power structures of the world because the rulers of this world are confronted with the one who uses heaven as his throne and the earth as his footstool. The King of kings and the Lord of lords confronts personally those who put themselves on thrones as kings and lords of this world. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's impossible to be ashamed of something that has such a profound effect on someone's life. Why? Because you you can't hide it. It will show. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us that we are a city set on a hill. Matter of fact, I'm going to go back and read that. There's something in that passage I think is relevant. This isn't in my notes. I'm going off the cuff here. But he says in Matthew 5, 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. 
Verse 14, you are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Now the reason that's significant to me is because when you go back in in first century culture, when you look at uh, what Rome was at the time, do do you know what people called Rome as a nickname? They called it the city on a hill. So whenever Jesus, so Jesus is up on the mountain, and he's got this ragtag bunch of people following him. He's got people on the margins following him. He doesn't have the upper echelon of society there with him. He's got poor folks. He's got down and out folks. He's got illiterate folks, unlearned folks, people like you and I, right? Okay, let's be honest. You know, we're up there with Jesus on the mount. And we're listening to him speak and he's telling us, you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. And they're thinking, I can't be a city set on a hill. That's, that's Rome. That's the big city. That's where all the philosophers are. That's where all the learned people are. That's where the rich people live. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Not them. It's you. You're the light of the world. And so you can't, there's no room for shame there. You can't hide a bright light. Jesus says that the kingdom has come to you. It's it's, it's the meek that inherit the earth. And so the gospel leaves no room for shame. And so Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's impossible to be ashamed of something that has such a profound effect on someone's life. Why? Because you can't hide it. In 1 Corinthians 1.18 he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to... Us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, that's why the world wants to generate shame for those who believe. They see the good news of the gospel as foolish. They see, it, they see the foundation of the gospel as foolish. They see the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as foolish. A passage that we'll look, up, that we'll look at soon enough, Romans 1.22, says, Professing to be wise... They became fools. And it's the fools of this world who go around accusing the wise of foolishness. And so then then the question in my mind as I was studying this passage this week is how does Jesus deal with this kind of shame? So if, if shame is something that David dealt with, if shame is something that Paul in the New Testament deal with, if shame is something that Jesus promised to us, then shame has to be something that Jesus experienced in his own life. Because they, pers- they certainly persecuted Jesus. And how did Jesus deal with it? I referenced referenced John 15 earlier, but if we keep reading where we left off, we'll see how Jesus explains the shame that was put on him by the world. John 15, 21, 23, and 25, he says, But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. He who hates me hates my father also. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Now this is significant. John 15 and John chapter 6 both. I'm not going to go back and read John 6. Uh, We just studied it a couple weeks ago, I think, in Sunday school. Because we're going through John right now in the encounter. But John 15 and John 6 are both significant because Jesus makes direct references to the fact that, you know, if they don't believe in him, they're not believing in the Father. If they don't love him, they don't love the Father. And Jesus says stuff like this over and over again. And, it's, and it's, a very, it's not controversial to our ears because we get it, right? We get that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We you know, understand the Trinity as best we can. So it doesn't sound controversial to us, but it's controversial to them. Because the Pharisees are going around, they're persecuting Jesus, and they believe they're doing the work of God. 
And so Jesus says, he who hates me hates my father also. And so Jesus is straight up saying, they, they hate me because they don't really know who God is. They hate me because they don't understand what God wants for his people. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. See, Jesus ultimately explains that the world's outrage toward him and his followers is rooted in their hatred toward God. The Pharisees believed they were doing God a service by treating Jesus and his followers the way they did. Paul believed he was doing God a service by persecuting believers the way he did. But ultimately what it all came down to is that they were worshiping and serving a God of their own making. See, they worshiped a God that didn't have a Messiah that was walking the earth and and performing miracles right in front of them. The God they worshipped no longer spoke. The God they worshipped had endowed them with authority to determine who really worshipped God and who didn't. And it certainly wasn't this extremist Jewish preacher and his band of twelve misfits. The Jews of Jesus' day didn't understand his teaching. They didn't understand his miracles. They didn't understand his acts of kindness and love. So what did they do? They responded out of fear and anger. They arrested him, and when given the choice between Barabbas, a thief, a criminal, or Jesus, they chose the one whose life is defined by taking rather than the one whose life is defined by how much of himself he gives. They took him and crucified him on a Roman cross, and they put him to shame. I remember my great-grandma Heflin used to sing a song uh, called Purple Robe. A couple of lines from the song say, Purple robe my Savior wore. Oh, the shame for me he bore as he stood alone forsaken on that day. So how does Jesus deal with the shame? Well, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us exactly how he dealt with it. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 tells us, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, here we go. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He despised the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. John Piper explains this well, so I'm going to read you an excerpt from one of his sermons where he talks about Jesus despising the shame. He said, Jesus despised the shame. But what does that mean? It means that when shame began to threaten his heart and to tempt him to abandon a clear and obedient witness to God and to the gospel, Jesus said to shame, Shame, I despise you. I will not yield to you. I will not give to you any satisfaction. You may do with me whatever you please in the short run. But I will not not obey you or follow you or give in to you. I despise you, shame, and will not let you rule me. How could he do how could he do that? How could I, how could you and I do that? Hebrews 12:2 says that he did it for the joy that was set before him. Though he was being shamed, Jesus was not ashamed of his God and Father. Why? Because God had power to save him from death and give him all satisfying glory at his right hand forever. See, this is the reason Paul can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The power that the gospel produces is far greater than the shame that the world produces. Shame becomes irrelevant when it's confronted with the the life-giving power of the gospel. Shame becomes irrelevant when it's confronted with this explosive power of the gospel. 
The joy before us is the same joy that was before Jesus. Life with God. See, when Jesus was on the cross, He despised the shame because He he knew that He was in the process of bringing all of His lost sheep together. And that's His joy. And our joy is life with Jesus. And that life begins now. Our joy is life with Jesus and all of His people. D.L. Moody shared one of the following stories about a young man in the military who experienced shame for his faith. And here's how the story goes. He said, a young man enlisted and was sent to his regiment. And the first night he was in the barracks with about 15 other young men who passed the time playing cards and gambling. Before retiring, he fell on his knees and prayed. And they began to curse him and jeer at him and throw boots at him. So it went on the next night and the next. And finally, the young man went and told the chaplain what had taken place and asked what he, what he should do. Well, said the chaplain, you're not at home now, and the other men have just as, right, just as much right to the barracks as you have. It makes them mad to hear you pray. And the Lord will hear you just as well if you say your prayers in bed and don't provoke them. So for weeks after the chaplain did not see the young man again, one day he went to meet him and he said, by the way, did you take my advice? And he said, I did for two or three nights. And well, how did it work for you? Well, said the young man, I felt like a whipped hound. And the third night I got out of bed, knelt down, and I prayed. Well, asked the chaplain, how did that work out for you? The young soldier answered, well, we have a prayer meeting there now every night. And three have been converted, and we're praying for the rest. And this is how Moody closed out that story. He said, Oh friends, I am so tired of weak Christianity. Let us be out and out for Christ. Let us give no uncertain sound. If the world wants to call us fools, let them do it. It is only a little while. The crowning day is coming. Thank God for the privilege we have of confessing Christ. Now listen, I believe that story is true. But we shouldn't expect to convert people every time we take a stand for Christ. If we do, that's great, but it's more likely that we'll experience a profoundly more negative response, a response from the world that tries to induce shame. And so what do we do when that happens? We do it anyway. We stand anyway. We remain faithful anyway because God is faithful and God has given us good news that transcends shame and goes straight to glory. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your people. And I feel, Father, that your spirit has been here. I feel that your spirit has opened the text for us. And so, Father, as we leave this place, let us us dismiss the feelings of shame that the world would try to induce upon us. Let us claim the glory that you have for us in the good news of your Son. And we ask it all in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.